0: We do have a history of terrible racial injustice. It has caused serious problems uh, that, that persist to this day. We have what I call a racial hangover uh, in the United States. And, and the best way to heal a wound is to clean it out right? You don't yeah. let it get infected. You clean it out. And yeah. so I think that's the same with our history. And as good classical liberals, we can look back at that history and say, look at the role that the state played in crushing the hopes and dreams of black Americans who just wanted to be a part of the American dream. And were are just doing what we told them they should do, which is to full- pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And then we got in their way every single time.
1: On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Dr. Rachel Ferguson, co author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America. Dr. Ferguson is the director of Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University Chicago, assistant dean of the College of Business, and professor of business ethics. We discussed her nuanced understanding of Black American history through the classical liberal lens. What went wrong? what could be done to make reparations today and the economic and personal freedom required to provide all Americans with the opportunity to live the American dream. If you enjoy my podcast and other content by AIER, make sure to subscribe to our new YouTube channel dedicated to short dynamic videos that explore topics like these. So this is quite a niche topic. There are many people who don't really want to go around it. (laughs) Uh, They're either looking at it from the perspective of a progressive, you know, things like the 1619 Project, or there are people like Thomas Sowell who are arguing pretty much what you're arguing, kind of the classical liberal tradition. But I think that um, what you do uniquely is you're also providing some counter arguments uh, to the problems that many people are pointing out, uh, rather than just dismissing them and saying, no, that's nonsense. So, can you maybe give us a little bit of the premise of your book and what it's about broadly?
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you contrast me to some extent with Soul. I think that's helpful actually because. Um, yeah, in many ways, ideologically, I align well with Seoul and what we're arguing is is you know it's sort of a classical liberal perspective. But, um, but we're trying to say, hey, but we're Americans and this is our story. These are our people. These are our relationships uh, within our nation. And so we are responsible for um, you know, dealing with some of the history, uh, that that we've really experienced and, um, and facing it head on. And, and we can do that from a classical liberal perspective. So we start out by really talking about what classical liberalism is very broadly thinking in terms of the three legal institutions of private property, freedom of contract. And the rule of just law, the equal protection of the the rule of just law, but also the sorts of values that classical liberals have, which include not only an appreciation for the free market and just the amazing productivity and creativity that it unleashes, but also um, civil society. You know, the role of just the voluntary associations that we create, uh, whether those are are religious or secular or whatever they may be. so much of what really happens in life is there. It's neither in the government or in the marketplace. It's in the family and in the neighborhood and in the churches and the volunteer organizations. And so drawing a lot of attention to those classical liberal values and then saying really that there is a pro-Black classical liberal tradition. And so we can look back at um, the ways in which we evaluate American history and we can see that Uh, So much of the oppression that black Americans experienced was really exclusion from those classical liberal institutions, Uh, government Mm. exclusion from private property rights, uh, uh, failure to respect contracts that were made um, or, or just disallow contracts from being made between black people and other people. Uh, and, And certainly sometimes even having law enforcement participate in violence instead of protecting people from violence. And so you see there how if you're excluded from the institutions that lead to all of the human flourishing that we think comes from a classical liberal setup, you're not going to experience some of that flourishing. And so we have a totally classical liberal way of taking the history of Black oppression very seriously. And we actually look at particular classical liberal thinkers like Um, like William Lloyd Garrison, you know, the great abolitionist who was a a very extreme free marketeer. Um, and the same with Frederick Douglass, you know, critical of unions, critical of socialists, um, very pro market, very sort of leave us alone and let us do our thing, you know, kind of a guy. And yet, um, you know, really stood up for uh, a black American's rights. And you can you can carry that tradition on through uh, Rose Wilder Lane and Sora Neal Hurston and plenty of other figures. And so we try to talk about that history and then finally look at solutions that are classical liberal in nature that have more with more to do with getting out of people's way than it does with interfering or micromanaging people through the government, because so much of the damage that has been caused has actually been a kind of social engineering attitude towards black and white relations uh, by, mm. through, you know, massive federal projects, actually uh, very progressive minded. And so we, we want to say, hey, let's not keep keep going back to the same empty well of, uh, of progressive solutions, but let's think really creatively about how we can move forward.
1: I think that's great because progressives are really good at pointing out problems, sometimes inflating them, but then offering, you know, what a classical liberal might think is totally the wrong solution. More intervention, more regulation, you know, more getting in the way, and you don't arrive at the intended outcomes. So... I think yeah. that that's, that's pretty much there.
0: <laughs> yeah, we actually kind of almost joke about this in the book because we have some people we draw on, like the wonderful book, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And uh, it's so helpful in understanding zoning and the role of, of highways and and redlining and, and so forth. And then at the end of the book, after telling you about all of this social engineering and how badly it all went, he just suggests more, you know, and you're like, what? You know, and so we're saying, yeah. hey, you've got really great insights here, but you're not understanding the problem of central planning and you're not understanding the problem of unintended consequences. And so you really need to face that problem and think more in terms of freeing people and getting out of their way. Um, rather than, you know, sort of giving into that addiction to planning.
1: So that is one of the tenets of classical liberalism, but I think that it's really hard for people to swallow. And I hear this a lot from people um, who might agree with me personally, you know, when it comes to certain values that I have or certain ideas of, of things that might be wrong with the world. And um, but how to fix them? They always think that there can be this benevolent uh, leadership, or what you might call in in the old days a benevolent dictator, right? Or a central planner. You know, there there are many ways to describe that. Many many uh, terms for it. Um, But why doesn't that work? Can you explain why classical liberal um, ideas in action produce better results?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, of course, the classic argument from somebody like Friedrich Hayek is going to be that um, really the central planner just doesn't have the information and he calls that the information problem. And he says, you know, look, we have a highly complex society, right? A, a modern the modern world is is like a web of interactions uh, between you know millions and even billions of people. And uh, you know it's it's just impossible that the central planner will be able to understand the consequences of all the things that he may put into place. Um, Where is that information? Well, it's held in two places. One way of talking about the information we need is just to say that it's local. So I have local information about my neighborhood, my skills, my family, my needs, right? My budget, all those things are local to me. Um, But then that information can be can be spread out over that big web of interaction through prices, right? So prices reflect the realities of supply and demand because Uh, you know, whatever price I'm willing to buy at or sell at is going to be reflected then in the general price. And so what that means is that people are able to make these little adjustments, you know, so something gets more expensive. You don't really need to know why you don't need to know what's causing that. You just know I'm going to switch to a different product because that's getting too expensive. Well, then that ends up conserving that product, right? And moving you into a more efficient use of some other product, even though no one told you to do that, right? It's just something that you did in response to the changes in prices. And so the, the sort of wonder of the price system is that it can take a lot of that local information into account and then allow us to coordinate in highly efficient ways. Um, and so I think the, the problem with the progressive mindset is that there's this assumption that because modern life is complex, we need more control by experts Right? And so the idea is that the higher the complexity, the more we need expert control, where what Hayek is saying, no, it's actually the opposite. The higher the complexity, the more you need decentralized forms of interacting in order to be able to take all that information into account. And so I really feel for your friends that you're talking about because in the rest of our lives, in our families, in our businesses, we're rationally planning our lives, right? And we're basing yeah. it on the information we have. And so it's really counterintuitive to say, okay, but when it comes to the whole society, you can't do that, right? You actually have to have a yes. completely different paradigm when it comes to, to bigger uh, polities. And so, yeah, it's very counterintuitive. It's something you have to kind of wrap your head around to understand.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's just a natural human tendency, right? Sometimes you want to, if you feel like, you know, anxiety or fear or some other kind of basic emotion like that, you want to control things. So, you know, and we're in a time where there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, and this is not just Mm -hmm. the last two years, um, but there's more of that certainly now, but in the last decades. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, You talk about, I haven't read your book, which I would love to read, but I've read, you know, some different analyses of your book. Um, And you talk about how we go through periods of more freedom, more economic freedom, more decentralization, and then more regulation, more control, you know, uh, affirmative action and things like that. So we're seeing kind of different outcomes that are correlated with those kinds of actions. So can you maybe zoom out a little bit and give us um, what you see as the broader historical arc of uh, what it's been like for black people in America living mm-hmm. through the the American experience.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the things that's really hard I think for people to to grasp or maybe to admit is that things really got worse before they got better. And so if we look at our founding, for instance, in that period, you know, slavery is seen as, as uh, a, a negative. It's, it's seen as kind of a necessary evil or something we're sort of trapped in. Um, the founders are actually very aware that this is totally um, incompatible with a free society. They're even concerned that it's going to sort of spell the doom, you know, of the American project. Um, when we get to the Missouri compromise in 1820, for instance, Thomas Jefferson is like, all right, this is the beginning of the end, you know? Um, and so they're, they're all sort of seeing that, that, that they've been trapped into this situation with, uh, slavery where it's hard to get out of economically, um, But it's also incompatible with, you know, with the the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That's actually really well understood. As the abolitionist um, cause is pushed harder and harder, the Southern planters actually react by becoming more ideologically racist than they were before. And so they come up with this idea of slavery as a positive good. This doesn't even appear until the late 1820s. Nobody was talking about slavery as a positive good. That was a very strange thing to say. But the idea was, gosh, if these abolitionists are hitting us really hard and they're making pretty good points, we're going to have to come up with some kind of justification of what we're doing. And so they're saying, well, actually, these people are sort of like children and they need to be taken care of. They're kind of hearkening back to Aristotle's argument of natural slavery. And so it actually makes things much worse. And then even with emancipation... Uh, coming through the Civil War, you're still seeing the rise of a kind of pseudo scientific, pseudo Darwinian view that is scientific racism, right? So the idea that you have this genetic story you're telling, and certain races are superior to other races. Of course, it's all pseudoscience, but the point is, is that it actually kind of digs its heels in, and we even see how in the post emancipation world of Reconstruction and post Reconstruction in the South, the kind of cascade of municipal laws and state laws that are put into place in order to separate the black and white communities is very artificial. I mean, even under slavery, blacks and whites in the South lived together. You know, they they lived and 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 worked together and were very close to one another. You know, physically. Yeah. Um, and so Jim Crow was actually very artificial. It came in and pushed people apart in artificial ways. And you saw in the twentieth century the rise of the federal government's intervention. So a lot of people think, oh, states' rights. You know, that's all about racism. Well, guess what? The federal government is super racist too, right? And so that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's, sadly, it's at every level of government, you know. Yeah. And so in the 20th century, you see the federal government also very artificially coming in with redlining policies, the way they're building the federal highway system, the way they're doing urban renewal programs, which are really like slum clearance. Uh, James Baldwin called it Negro removal. It's a lot of eminent domain abuse. Um, they're really trying to socially engineer white and black people and saying, you know, you'll be more peaceful if you live apart. And so you actually have neighborhoods where people were fairly integrated. You have, you know, maybe a black street and a Polish street and an Irish street or something like that. Everybody's living near their factory and they're pulled apart and whites are sent out to the suburbs and blacks are kept in the cities and uh, and their their property rights are undermined. And so that's what's so hard is that you have these attempts and part of the story we try to tell in the book is how black americans really do lift themselves up in amazing ways they they have a huge leap forward in literacy coming through the black church and through all sorts of voluntary efforts um you know they're they're doing very well economically for instance in the in the 1950s and yet it seems like every time they make a stride forward some new obstacle is raised in their way um, you can see that in the story of Tulsa, Oklahoma, with the, the the community in Greenwood who in 1921 were attacked by their white neighbors and their, and their town was destroyed and many of them were murdered. And it's like, these were people who were doing really, really well economically. We called it Black Wall Street, right? And so there was a kind of envy that arose and destroyed mm. uh, a, a lot of that growth. And so you can see just how frustrating it has genuinely been for Black Americans who believe in the American dream and want to be great business people, right? Right. And want to participate and yet keep having their property rights and their contract rights and really even just their protection by the law abrogated over and over and over again throughout history. So it is very frustrating. There's a balance there, I think, to be seen between the progressive and, and and the conservative accounts of American history.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because you brought up the word envy. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that this is what a lot of it comes down to. And, you know, people often don't want to face their envy, right? So they might do things uh, that, again, will will try and control a situation, you know, on the broader scale. Um, and they're saying always the opposite of, their intentions, like we're going to do this to liberate black people, uh, we're going to do this uh, to create better circumstances for minorities. Uh, you know, it's why is it that you often hear people saying the opposite of what they're what they're going setting out to do?
0: You know, I I may be wrong about this, but I actually assume in many cases that um, you know progressives who are thinking these things through are sort of just sincerely wrong. So in other words, I think they actually believe that mm-hmm. if they can get these um, programs or whatever it might be into place, that they will do all of this good. And they just can't believe that they can intend one thing and get a different outcome. So you brought up affirmative action earlier. Can I use that as an example? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, look, initially right after the anti-discrimination law is passed, you certainly have a lot of people who had been kept out of jobs that they could have graduated into, uh, but they weren't allowed to, right? Because of various forms of discrimination. And so you could certainly see at that time, um, you know, the justification for some kind of affirmative action. Let's get people up into what they're really qualified to be doing. They've been kept out. Uh, but over time, you actually see this begin to backfire. So it just depends on the timing. Um, as time goes on, what you see is, let's use the example of, uh, of university admissions. What you see is what John McWhorter calls a mismatch. And so if it's true, and I believe it is true, that Black Americans have been, uh, you know, excluded in many ways from, uh, you know, the, the sorts of educational and economic opportunities that they should have had, then you will have many Black people coming into, uh, higher education who you know they didn't go to a fancy college prep school they didn't have a special act tutor you know they didn't have a lot of these advantages and so but they're you know very intelligent so maybe they'll get into say university of michigan they want to be a doctor or lawyer or whatever it might be engineer if we continue to use affirmative action in the way that we were talking about way back in the 1960s what you're gonna see is somebody at the University of Michigan getting picked up and moved to Harvard, right? Or MIT, or a place like that. The problem, though, is that many of those places are full of people who did have the prep school and the ACT tutor and all of these privileges, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're moving at a much faster pace. And so you might see, and this is, we can bear this out with the data, you might see a lot of black students getting moved to these schools who are then dropping out of the more sophisticated majors like med school or or pre law and dropping into sociology or education or something that's that's easier for them to keep up with the pace. Now is that because they're not smart enough? No, of course not. Right? It's all about their educational background. Okay, yeah. And so what we actually end up doing is creating fewer black doctors, lawyers, and engineers because we moved them from the University of Michigan where they would have done great and moved it at the pace that, that their education had prepared them for uh, versus a place where they're now dropping down into something uh, not as sophisticated and that's not going to have as high of pay and that's not going to put them into as influential of a position socially. And so we've totally shot ourselves in the foot. Yeah, And I'm just not willing to sound good by approving of affirmative action if it's actually going to undermine black people, right? Yes. I'd rather sound bad and be against it, but do something that's actually going to make black people better off. So I'm sticking to my guns on, on cases like that.
1: So what you just described, I guess, is kind of like equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. It's if we look at, at outcomes, you know, like how many you know black people are at Harvard or something like that, right? Um, then we're constantly looking to match the outcome perfectly to the to the percentage of population. Um, but we are way too close to the damage the damage of Jim Crow and and federal planning uh, and social engineering. We're way too close to that to think that all of that has worked out yet, right? And so we really, really need to focus on equality of opportunity uh, in order to, uh, you know, let people flourish in whatever direction they want. And then, of course, ultimately, different people are different, right? And so if I look at hockey and I notice that there's not as many black people in it, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with racial discrimination, right? That's just because black people aren't as interested in hockey as they are in basketball or something else. And you can see this in a lot of other areas. And so we have to take into account that cultures are different, people's cultural backgrounds and interests are different. And so we're never going to get some perfect match with the percentage of the population. And that's okay. People can prefer what they want to prefer and we can be different as long as everybody has a chance.
1: Well, it's really funny because, you know, critics might say that what you just said was stereotypical. Like, I don't think that, you know, but I mean, some people might say, oh, well, those are just stereotypes. You know, you can't just say those kinds of things. That's not how it actually is. And they kind of think, you know, everybody has to be the same. Like they're, they're, conflating being the same with being equal.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And so one of the really important distinctions I make, I'm a philosopher, right? So I make distinctions about terms very carefully. And one of the things about equality is that classical liberalism believes in legal equality equality before the law and there's a we have a lot of problems with that our criminal justice system is very classist there's a lot that we have to deal with in that regard but that's our goal our goal is to be equal before the law it's not to be equal in outcomes because we're not equal we all have different different gifts i don't tend to think of those gifts as being Grouped by race, particularly race is kind of a made-up category anyway, right? I mean, it's really just your skin color, Um, and so it's it's a category that matters because it mattered historically, but it doesn't really matter like biologically, you know, Uh, not much. I mean, there's a little bit of things like. You know, maybe a particular disease might be more common among you know a certain group or something like that. But other than that, I really don't give I don't give any attention to sort of biological accounts of of race. Uh, I don't think that those hold much water. Um, instead, I think of it more individually. So when I talk about say basketball versus hockey, what I'm talking about there is actually just culture. So for instance, ninety percent of the Black American population until the fifties lived in the South East. in the Southeast, right? How much hockey is there in the Southeast? There there just isn't, you know? I mean, that's just not where it happens. It happens in Minnesota. Are there going to be black hockey players in Minnesota? Yeah, I'm sure there's a few, right? Okay, great. You know, so that's wonderful. But the point is is that culture is largely regional. And so we can say things about people's cultures uh, because we can pay attention to what goes on in certain regions and so we can, we can praise Black Americans, for instance, for their incredible contributions in things like the a- area of music, for instance, is, is one of the most amazing areas of contribution from Black Americans. Is that a stereotype? No, it's a fact. Um, it's absolutely a fact. Jazz, rock and roll, rap, hip hop, you know, yeah. I mean, so much is coming out of the Black American tradition. We owe that. We owe that to them to acknowledge that because it's coming out of that cultural tradition.
1: So just a thought here that's coming up, do you think that that has something to do with um, black Americans in the church and singing and like having music be part of the culture that you spoke about in earlier American culture?
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. And so there were African folkways that that were maintained. Um, American slavery was set up in such a way that, the, a lot of uh, African religion and so forth was lost, um, and so they they retained just some of the the cultural practices, such as um, the ring dance and singing and chanting and some of those things. Um, but uh, early on in the um, Great Awakenings, you had a lot of black. Uh, enslaved people getting converted in the Great Awakenings, just like a lot of white people got converted in the Great Awakenings, to a kind of evangelical Christianity. And uh, it's important to note here that, and I talk about this in the book, um, slave owners, planters, slaveholders, really didn't evangelize their slaves. So we have this idea of like, the white man's religion or something. Um, That's not actually how it happened. They didn't want to evangelize their slaves because they thought that if their slaves converted to Christianity, they might actually have a stronger claim on their freedom. And they, they were right about that, actually. As soon as as soon as black enslaved people did convert, they did think they had a stronger claim yes, on freedom yes. uh, because they started reading in the Bible about the exodus. Right. And, yeah. and uh, that being made in the image of God and having a kind of uh, spiritual equality. Uh-huh. Right. And so they were like, hey, wait a second. So that they were right to be afraid of that. That's exactly right. Um, but actually, that term white man's religion arises from the later plantation missionaries who were trying to talk to them about obedience and not stealing, and they would never talked about Jesus or anything at all. And, uh, and by that point, black uh, enslaved Christians were already practicing Christ- the Christian religion on their own in secret. And uh, they knew it was a bunch of baloney and that, that their way of practicing the faith was was the correct way. And so they called that the white man's religion, but they weren't referring to Christianity. They were referring to the plantation missionaries. Wow. And so, so what we see is actually a very specifically black Christian tradition, which is coming about literally in secret. They're sneaking away at night to something called hush harbors, and they're singing and praying and worshiping together in their own way. And so, um, as black churches begin to, to develop, uh, you really see a a totally unique, uh, Christian tradition with its own way of preaching, its own way of singing, uh, its own way of interacting with the scriptures that is totally different really from, certainly from the Anglican, the Anglicanism of the slaveholders, but even different from other white evangelicals. And a lot of that has to do with music, which is informed by the African folk ways. So there was Uh, the, The revivalists report an incredible amount of joy at the point of conversion among the enslaved because while they were sorry for their sin... Uh, they were more excited that they could have a relationship with the creator of the universe. So so there was a real joy and they would dance and sing immediately. And the revivalists just loved this. They were like, these people are amazing, you know, because they were immediately full of this incredible joy. And you see that in, in Black worship styles, the whooping style of preaching, uh, the gos- Black gospel music, a lot of sort of charismatic expression, Uh, In worship and what we call ecstatic worship, um, which is something that black people maintain, even when they're in other denominations, Catholic or Methodist or whatever it might be. Often the black tradition in that denomination will have a kind of ecstatic side to it.
1: Wow, that's so interesting. So, like, my one question that always comes back to my mind, um, and that I think probably a lot of people think about, and this is why maybe people are seduced by things like the 1619 Project, is why would there be slavery at the creation of the United States? Like, why would that be allowed to exist within that system? Mm.
0: Yeah, great question. And so uh, one thing I would say, I mean, this is certainly what what Jefferson said in the original version of the Declaration of Independence. He felt that the Americans were... Um, what do I want to say? That they were burdened with slavery by England. In other words, that that this was a leftover, something left over from a pre-liberal way of operating. Um, and he actually blames King George for that. They made him take that part out because of the Southern planters. But he actually had a line in there where he said, you know, he saddled us with this terrible institution, which involved, you know, oppression. I mean, he says it very clearly, which involved basically kidnapping people from their homes mm-hmm. and, and and oppressing them, which, of course, is very ironic because Jefferson himself was was a slaveholder. Um, I think he wanted to free his slaves, but he had too much debt. Uh, So he couldn't do it. But uh, so the idea is that they get caught up into an economic system in which the agricultural um, practices are so tied in with slavery that they can't escape. Now, the original founders, uh, founding generation that wrote the Declaration of the Constitution, they actually thought that it might end in a generation. Um, They thought that it might sort of naturally become less economically viable and they weren't actually totally wrong about that. It was the it was the invention of the cotton gin that sort of re-energized slavery as um you know as as a viable way of doing things economically. Wow. And so uh what you see is that the founding generation, I mean the anti-federalists are just they they are just absolutely condemning slavery. They're saying this is why we can't sign on to the Constitution. We can't compromise with this Right. And then and then the Federalists are saying maybe it's just temporary. Right. The next generation can get rid of it. We're almost it's almost over was kind of their idea. Sort of. I always joke about Augustine's famous prayer in which he said, Lord, make me chase. Just not right now. (laughs) You know, And, and and so, you know, I feel like the founding generation was like. Our kids will take care of it, you know, sort yeah. of like, you know, putting yeah. it off. Um, but they, they actually thought, and maybe wisely, that it could have been possible. And then there was a technological change that actually sort of threw us back into um, into our, our entrapment with with slavery. And so, um, yeah, so it's really tragic the way that it occurs. Of course, if we had had free labor, we would have been much better off economically. So I spend all of Chapter 2 Um, you know, sort of arguing against the 1619 Project view that slavery is a really great way to generate wealth. Uh, it's, it's not, right? Exploitative uh, forms of, Interacting are never a great way to generate wealth because you exclude people from the things that make us richer, like trade, innovation, learning, improving your human capital, moving to where you need to go so that your labor can be used in the most efficient way. If you can't move, you can't learn, you can't invent, and you can't buy and sell, then we're missing out on all of the exchanges that we could be having with you and all that you have to give to the larger economy. So it's not that slavery was so efficient. It's that the slaveholders were reliant on slavery for their wealth, kind of the way like pirates are—you know—are are dependent on there being, uh, you know, a decent group of people who are not pirates, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and they take from them, and so they had this kind of extraction. That they were doing and so they had to keep slavery in place and they had a lot of political power and so they were able to keep it in place in order to benefit themselves but most white people in the south were very poor it was not advantageous for them at all it dra- drugged their wages down because they had to compete with yeah. slaves slave yeah. labor um and and it and it caused them to not put a lot of work into infrastructure and technological advancement and things like that in the south and really made the south more economically backwards And so sometimes you can see, we call that cronyism, Mm -hmm. right? You can see where bad situations can get locked in because established groups can manipulate the legal system in order to benefit just themselves, uh, actually at the expense of everyone around them. And that's exactly what happened with the planters of the
1: South. It's interesting that you brought up cronyism because that was kind of what came to mind, you know, and I didn't want to uh, maybe say it out loud, but I think that there's some parallels in the system that we see now and there's, Maybe that explains a lot of the anger with people. You know, we just actually put out a video. I did a podcast with uh, Samuel Gregg, and you know, talked about basically why um, you know cronyism came to be, and people often conflate that with free markets or with free market capitalism. And kind of capitalism has gotten this this bad name, right? So I think that this um, there must be some some connection between people wanting to rewrite history and the maybe an unconscious feeling or a conscious feeling of oppression that they actually have because of these crony systems that are in place now. Do you think there's anything to that?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I do think we have elements of oligarchy um, happening right now because you do have established interests who are able to regulate their competitors out of out of mm-hmm. business. Um, they're able to subsidize themselves at the expense of everyone else. Um, I think you can really see this in cases of, like, for instance, the corn subsidies in the United States are terrible for all of us. The corn syrup is making us sick and fat. Um, I mean, you know, it's a terrible way to, um, to make ethanol. Uh, it's, it's very inefficient. It actually takes more energy to make the ethanol than it saves to use ethanol, uh, because we make it from corn rather mm-hmm. than other things. Um, and yet we keep doing it, right? It's so, it's so illogical in a way that we keep doing it, but we keep doing it because you have these entrenched interests and they have their lobby and you sort of can't stop them because there's a logic of collective action problem. In other words, they've got every reason to band together and keep their subsidies going. But you and I as taxpayers who are paying, you know, a few cents into each of these subsidies don't necessarily have the motivation to band together and say, no, stop. Right. We don't want to pay for any more corn subsidies. Um, That's just one of the many subsidies that our that our tax money goes to. And so it's an organ. It's hard for us to organize and get together. That's called the collective action problem. And so I think that's that's an interesting idea you've got there that people have this sense and they're not wrong that there are these powerful people who are kind of driving what happens in a way that's at the expense mm-hmm. of others. Um, and so they're feeling that and then they're kind of interpreting history as sort of nothing but yes. that. Um, yeah, the idea of, of people just ex- gaining through extraction. Yeah. And what what we have to push back on and say is... You know, you're not wrong to be really worried about that. Adam Smith was worried about it, right? Adam Smith says, don't get business people in a room for 10 minutes. They'll try to collude against (laughs) the public. You know, he knows what they're going to do. They're all just looking out for themselves. And so you have to push back against that cronyism. But what we have to say is, no, but the reason the market is so productive is because of innovation. Innovation is what makes us richer. And so we always want to push back against the cronyism and find ways to encourage the startups, right? To make sure we make it easy for people to try new things and to get in there uh, and and, and get into the room where it happens. And so that we can be benefiting from their innovation because that's how you supercharge an economy is by releasing creativity and innovation. And that's, I think, what our 1619 Project friends miss. Uh, when they sort of conflate capitalism with all of these other forms of oppression.
1: Yeah, Um, very well said. Um, So I'm thinking too, what would have been the most innovative or creative or uh, financially free period for black Americans in the historical arc in your point of view? When were they the best off?
0: That's That's an interesting question. I would certainly say that Black Americans are the best off right now. Um, Now is a a great time to be a Black American. And I say that because, you know, 20% under the poverty line is too many, but 80% are not under the poverty line. Oh, a majority of Black Americans are middle class. Uh, You have many uh, very, you know, very well-off influential Black Americans. Uh, You have a lot of freedom, a lot of awareness. Um, a lot of ways to, including social media, ways to work together in order to boost the black economy. Um, and so I, I think that we have made a lot of progress. I mean, that's one of the other disagreements I might have with sort of what we're seeing on the far left is the idea, oh, we haven't made any progress. It's like, look around you. You know, we, a majority middle-class black America is is pretty great. That's a huge stride forward. And so I think now is is good in that regard, but we have struggles, uh, that continue to be about, um, too much government interference. And so uh, I'll give you a good example here. Um, my friend, Craig Richardson down at the center for the study of economic mobility at Winston-Salem, great guy. You should interview him. Um, he has talked about the fact that the, the Dodd-Frank banking, uh, regulations, make there's so much paperwork that it makes processing small loans a waste of time for the bank. Like it's literally, they can't justify spending the time on the processing for that small of a loan. And so what that means is you have people who are trying to get into small starter homes, you know, maybe 70,000, $80,000. My first home called costed $64,000 You know, it was a little old historic two family flat, you know, in kind of an up and coming neighborhood. And so that was great. I could get a loan for that. Well, now it's really hard post Dodd-Frank. And so what do you have? You have Wells Fargo coming in and buying up a lot of these places and renting them because they've got cash so they can buy Mm -hmm. them. And so for the Joe Schmo person who's trying to climb their way up, right? They're trying to live the American dream. They can't even get into a small home, small starter home, to start building their equity and stop paying all their money to the landlord. Right? And so what does that do? It it concentrates the wealth more and more with the people who already have wealth, right? And makes it harder for other people to get on the ladder and climb up. So... So on the one hand, we're definitely at the best moment in terms of black flourishing, but we're seeing new obstacles that we need to fight back against in order to make sure that anybody who's coming from a more struggling economic background is able to get on the bottom rung of that ladder and keep climbing.
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. And as you as you pointed, it's not only an issue of race or certain, you know, populations that are dealing with that. But I think that it's Definitely millennials, you know, they are they are feeling that. And the next generation after us, they're looking at things and saying, what am I even going to do with my life, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of factors in there that maybe they see uh, that there was some kind of, what they assess as being a failure of free markets, you know, even though maybe we haven't had anything close to free markets, uh, really free markets for a while. So they kind of blame it on that and they're skeptical. So they say, well, let's, let's have more control. Let's have, you know, let's have more intervention. Let's do all of this kind of thing. I mean, that's, that's the only thing that, that, they, that they look towards as a solution. Yeah, Yeah, and, and,
0: and remember when you say like, yeah, because we, we have a huge growth in the administrative state, we have a huge growth in regulation. And so we think of the time before that as being more free market. Uh, yes, but not for black people. I mean, right? If you go back to, to Jim Crow, if you go back to the eminent domain abuse I talked about with the building of the highways and urban renewal, what you actually have is constant interference in the lives of of black people and an inability to move where they wanted to move, go to school, where they wanted to go to school, even marry who they wanted to marry. Right. Um, uh, lots of limitations. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we libertarian types or classical liberal types, because sort we of harking back to the time when there was less regulation, but we have to remember not everyone ever was in that time. Right. Because yes. people were treated differently. And so, um, you know, they haven't yet fully experienced the wonders of the free market.
1: Yes, and you know uh, this is something I'd like to ask you about. I know that it's it's a little bit of a tangent, um, but it's something that kind of came up after speaking with Sam Greg and some of the comments that I got. You know, and we were talking about that uh, maybe the the millennials were you know having a hard time seeing the benefits of those systems, but then another thought that came up was well. The millennials didn't cause the problem, though. You know, they were not the ones who necessarily began all of those systems, you know, affirmative action, the welfare state, having mass government spending. It was kind of the generation before, you know, so um, and and maybe the baby boomers, you know, if you want to point out a a certain um mm-hmm. group um and and we would argue like they should have known better right like they kind of ruined a good thing they had good things going for them and and they kind of went a little bit off the deep end with spending and with and with trying to manage and control everything do you have anything to say about that
0: yeah i want to offer a caution here yeah. Um, and I will I point everyone to the work of my friend Jeremy Horpital, who's a very, very careful economist, that it, there is a problem of perception going on. So millennials perceive things to be worse than they really are. Um, that's really important to say, because you'll read all these articles about how hard it is to get very, you know, yeah. to get the job you want or the housing you want or whatever. A lot of this is kind of a problem of of relativity. So. Our parents didn't buy a beautiful two-story suburban home with tile and granite countertops when they got married. They bought a little 700-square-foot linoleum tile home, and they didn't (laughs) go to Disney World. They went to grandma's, you know, for vacation, right? That was normal. That was expected. Now we're actually so wealthy— that we expect to move into the house our parents are in now, right? In other words, what they've been working for for thirty-five years. We're yes. going. Why can't I have that? Well, they didn't start with that, right? That is and, a good point. And so we have to be really careful because we're kind of comparing apples to oranges a lot of times. We say, "Oh, our parents were in homes." Yeah, but they were in tiny homes, you know, and and they weren't fancy and they didn't have fancy systems like everything has now. They didn't go to Disney World. We're all going to Panama and going, you know, taking all these trips. Yeah. And yeah. and you know, and wanting our experiences. So it's kind of like the humanprogress.org and the gapminder.org and those sorts of websites that are showing you, hey, things are actually really good. They've actually gotten a lot better in terms of wealth. You actually have a lot of wealth, you have a lot of options, mm-hmm. you can pick, you know, work that's very meaningful. You don't just have to do whatever you can get hired to do, right? You have a lot yeah. of choices. And so some of that is is asking people to be a little more realistic and a little more appreciative and grateful for where they're actually at. So that's sort of my caution there
1: yeah, uh, with the no, millennials. And, and, and that's a fair point. I agree with that as well, um, because I think that, you know, just to insert a little opinion here, I think that there's also uh, something to do with that framing of things can also be pointing to what you're saying, being less grateful and uh, being in a state of victimhood, which is also one of the big social problems that we see that kind of connects with everything else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm not denying the frustration that you can experience with regulation, you know, trying to start a business trying yeah. to, to buy that first house, whatever it may be. It's true. There's a lot more hoops to jump through and things mm-hmm. that are difficult. I consider that to be a lot harder for people coming from an impoverished background. We're having to wait and jump through hoops and get more education and get more licensing and get, you know, those are all going to be more of a burden on them than they are on middle and upper class people, for sure, people with those kinds of backgrounds. And so that is very frustrating. But I sometimes do see that sort of victim mentality going on. And so, yeah, I think we have to sort of balance those things in our minds.
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that as well. Um I think you know there's also the thing that you were talking about before with banks coming and buying out properties, you know, and kind of um artificially uh, raising the prices, you know? So I think that that's one of the things that people have a hard time with as well as the situation you're describing where you could buy that linoleum-floored house and it would, would maybe be like a third of your yearly salary and you could pay off your house in three to five years kind of thing, right? Um, whereas now people are going and saying, I, it will take me 30 years to pay this off at least, you know, and it's and it's going to cost me um, three or four times my salary, five times six times like I just can't afford it I'll just stay off the market I'll rent and then they go to the renting market and because of the situation you described they can't really afford to rent either and so then you know there's a lot of a lot of problems there there's that's why there's that um, that stereotype of people living in their parents basement right
0: Yeah that's right and I actually <laughs> just read an article this morning on on friendship. And, and polling on friendship. And this generation is far more likely to call their parents uh, for help and advice, mm. or when they're having a problem, men, especially, interestingly are more likely than women to call mm. their parents uh, than their friends uh, mm. or, or more likely than they, than they were, you know, another, yeah. a generation ago, uh, they're, they're more likely to call their parents, which is really interesting. And, and parents yep. also spend more time, with their children twice as much time as they used to. Um, kids used to run around with their friends all day, right? Now they hang out with their parents. Um, so, so yeah, there's interesting cultural changes occurring. You know, how much of this is economic? How much is it cultural? I think there are interesting questions there. Um, you know, there's a kind of extension of adolescence problem that we're having here where we're, you know, we're we're staying uh, children too long, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, and some of that could have to do with kind of the helicopter parenting uh, that occur that has that has occurred. If you've yeah. read The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukanoff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he he talks about that sort of thing. Yeah. And so, yeah. But on the other hand, you do have things like uh, the fact that it's very hard to build new housing. In a lot of places, which means that, you know, housing prices are too high because if I try to build new housing, they're going to give, you know, I've got to have solar panels and high tech this and green that. And it's yep. very expensive. And you spend $80,000 just pleasing the regulators before you've even put a shovel in the ground. That's it. Um, this is ridiculous. You know, it's, it's it makes it impossible. And so those prices are going to keep going up. One possibility I do see is the rise of remote work. I'm wondering whether, of course, this is limited, not everybody can do remote work, but I am wondering whether we will see people moving to um, smaller cities, smaller towns, where, you know, my own town of St. Louis has a great real estate market. Um, It's very affordable to live here. We're, We're in the top 10 best cities for startups uh, in St. Louis, we have some of the top 10 uh, best towns to live in. Yes, the city of St. Louis is not doing very well, but the county is doing very, very well. And um, and uh, very charming, historic areas, you know, brick homes. And so I always say to people, leave New York, leave L.A., leave Chicago, come, come to St. Louis. Yep. Right. Uh, You know, and so or or maybe people will go back to some of their small towns and and work from home. You know, I don't know. So it'll be interesting to see sort of the fallout after covid if we're able to, um, you know, actually recover maybe some of that localism that we used to have or family cohesion that we used to have just because people people can work from wherever now in some cases.
1: Yeah, well, that's a trade-off. And this actually will segue uh, me back into thinking about Thomas Sowell, where he he said, uh, there are no solutions, there are only (laughs) trade-offs. Classic, classic. It's so true. Uh, So are there areas of thought that you disagree with him on very much? Or how in line are you with his way of thinking?
0: I think that it's less uh, what we think and more our style. And so I think Soule is very much kind of an Enlightenment rationalist, right? He's a Friedmanite, you know, he's sort of a secular mind. And and so, for instance, he'll talk about the fact that, you know, American slavery wasn't special. Slavery went on worldwide. Uh, maybe what was special about us is actually that we ended slavery. You know, we we paid such a high price to end slavery. He's not wrong about that. He's totally right about that. That's important to know. I, 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 I've met uh, Black people who... Assume that American slavery is is much worse than in other places, and when you say, "Well, you know, Brazil got ten times as many people from West Africa that than North America did," you know, and many of them just died from how mm-hmm. terrible the work was. Okay. You know, that's all important things to know. I think what soul the difference in our styles is that soul is such a rationalist that he will say, you know, therefore, we should just kind of move on, right? Like, it's not a big deal. Everybody's had slavery. Just move on. And this is a little mean, but this is my joke. This is my my sort of allegory or metaphor. I say, you know, if I'm in an abusive relationship with someone and they stop abusing me, and I say... You know, I think we should go to counseling because of the years of abuse that I endured at your hands. And they say, you know, abuse is pretty common. There's lots of relationships where you have domestic abuse. I mean, why don't we just move on? That would be ridiculous. You know, why is that ridiculous? Because it's a relationship between me and you, right? It's our relationship. So no matter how common these things are in other relationships, the pain is in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same with being an American. This is our pain. Yes. Other people have pain too. That's right. And I hope they do with it too. But the point is is that this is our history our history. We do have a history of terrible racial injustice. It has caused serious problems uh, that, that persist to this day. We have what I call a racial hangover uh, in the United States. and and the best way to heal a wound is to clean it out right? You don't yep. let it get infected. You clean it out. And yep. so I think that's the same with our history. And as good classical liberals, we can look back at that history and say, look at the role that the state played in crushing the hopes and dreams of black Americans who just wanted to be a part of the American dream. And we're just doing what we told them they should do, which is to full, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And then we got in their way every single time. And we should lament that. We should properly memorialize that. We should know that and speak about it with grace and Intelligence, and then move on to solutions that involve really freeing people and empowering them uh, to pursue their dreams.
1: That was beautifully said, and um, you know, I'm I'm tempted to end here because that's such a high note to leave things on. But I also kind of want to take this maybe in in one other direction with another question. Um, Sure. So, what about then people who will say that that's not enough? Like, it's not enough to just look at the past. Um, to evaluate it, to heal from it, to clean out the wound. We need reparations.
0: Yeah, so I do address reparations in my epilogue. Um, classical liberals are not necessarily against reparations. I think, for instance, we would all consider it to have been just that Japanese Americans whose farms were stolen and who were interned by, by Roosevelt in World War II, that they should have received the money that they received in the 1980s. That was the correct thing to do. I think all classical liberals would agree on that. And so I think if we look at the concept of reparations, we want to look at things that are within our lifetime or within a lifetime, Mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, 80 years or something like that. And we're well within a human lifetime when it comes to many of the offenses of Jim Crow and, and of the, uh, uh, eminent domain abuse that I discussed and, and things like that. And so, um, I actually take the idea of reparations seriously, but here's where I differ from most. Um, There's a notion that because someone was oppressed, someone else benefited. But I think one of the great insights of classical liberalism is that oppressing people actually doesn't benefit the whole. Um, It might benefit a few people who are gaining from directly extracting from the people they're oppressing, but the economy itself gets poorer, which means that most white Americans didn't benefit from Jim Crow. They lost. Yeah. They didn't lose as much as black Americans lost, but they lost out too because they lost on all that they could have gained from exchange with black Americans. And so what that means is that we can't just tax and spend to, to do reparations uh, because that would just be adding injustice to injustice. Instead, I think we need to hold the people responsible who are responsible, and that's the federal government. <laughs> uh, and so if we look at most of the things that were done in the 20th century, the really, really terrible upending of black life was, was done by the federal government through massive federal po- projects. And the federal government owns about $2 trillion in land, uh, and it owns other kinds of assets as well. I think these should be sold off and privatized, uh, or some of these should be sold off and privatized. Uh, many of them don't need to be owned by the government anyway. That's inefficient. and um, And then that money could be put to use. Uh, then the question becomes: How do you put it to use, right? Um, if what we're concerned about is rebuilding, really, I think black wealth—that's the area where you see the most complaint—is the—is the black-white wealth gap, and we do want to build black wealth. We want—we want black people to be wealthier. And so, uh, I actually, I'm working on this right now. So I'm reading a book called Financial Exclusion by Robert E. Wright yes. um, from AIER. And, uh, and we're looking at the way that, for instance, community banks and black banking and so forth can be supported uh, in such a way that the federal government doesn't become the person who's sort of picking and choosing uh, risk, you know, you know, trying to assess risk because they're not good at that. They're not good at doing that. They're too far away, right? You yeah. need the local knowledge of the community bank. Yes. So instead, we need to release people to have those kinds of financial institutions. And that's something I'm actually writing a paper on right now. So I'll have more to say in the future. But the idea is that whatever we do, it should we need to be very smart about not creating those unintended consequences, not micromanaging people with their lives, um, not handing out money That ends up undermining people's dignity, but rather coming up with ways for people to participate in the market and become entrepreneurs and become business owners uh, in a way that makes up for all the ways we got in their way, you know, perhaps in the past. So some of that will be just changing regulatory mechanisms on things like community banks. Others of it might involve using some of those federal assets in order to capitalize those those banks. Uh, those sorts of things are what we're considering. But yeah. so I actually, as I say, I actually take reparations
1: seriously, but you got to do it right. Well, you know, that actually is the best uh, argument that I've ever had for that I've ever heard for reparations and and how you should go about doing it. I mean, I think it's a fantastic idea. So I look forward to seeing what you come up with. Um And listen, this has been a great discussion. It's already been an hour has flown by. So um, thank you for being here, Rachel Ferguson. Where can people find you? Where can they find your work?
0: Sure. So I'm at Liberty Ethics on Twitter. Uh, I do a lot on Twitter. So please join me there. Uh, you, can, you can Facebook me. You can link in with me, Rachel Ferguson at Concordia Chicago, Concordia University Chicago. And then I try to keep my website, RachelFergusonOnline.com uh, updated, although I'm a couple months behind. But, but you can find blog posts, podcasts, uh, essays, things I've written in discourse for Acton, you know, various places there. And uh, yeah, I'd love to meet you. So please reach out. Awesome!
1: Thank you so much. Any last thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with?
0: Yeah, I really hope that uh, people who are classically, liberally minded, or conservative, or libertarian—you know—somewhere in that realm—can um, really uh, begin to rise to the occasion when it comes to our racial conversation. I actually think we, our tradition, has. A lot to offer in this regard. That's what I try to show in the book, and I think that we could do a much better job of engaging these uh, these topics instead of being dismissive. So I hope that you'll you'll get the book and read it, and 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 maybe feel that that uh, you know that the classical liberal pro black tradition is something to be proud of.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Rachel, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Wonderful. I'd
0: love to. Thanks, Kate. Thanks.
1: All right. That was awesome. Great, Thank you. I'm glad. That was really fun.